Hello and welcome to Stories of the Second World War. I'm your host, Noah Tetzner, and I'm so excited to have you with us today. Before we begin to discuss the incredible story that is today's episode, I would just like to encourage you to consider supporting the show by visiting our friends at Legacy Collectibles. Legacy Collectibles is a World War II and military firearms dealer that I personally trust and recommend for anyone listening who is fascinated by World War II and wants to own a piece of its history for themselves. While they specialize in World War II German pistols, Legacy Collectibles has firearms from countries all over the world, all of which can be easily viewed on their user-friendly website, and that's legacy-collectibles.com. In addition to their great website, if you're someone interested in learning more about the history behind some of these weapons, check out the Legacy Collectibles YouTube channel for informative videos curated by historical weapons experts. If you're interested in World War II weaponry and would like to consider supporting the podcast, head over to legacy-collectibles.com or simply follow the links in the description of this episode to both their website and YouTube channel. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Today I'm joined by Sir Nicholas Young, a distinguished charity worker and the former chief executive of the British Red Cross. Nick was knighted for services to cancer care in 2000 and received the Queen's Badge of Honor in 2013. In retirement, he remains a charity trustee, advisor, and consultant, as well as the chair of the Monte San Marino Trust, which was set up by former POWs in Italy, and which will receive proceeds from the sale of his book, which is our topic of discussion today. Nick Young, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, Noah, thank you very much indeed for having me on board. I'm delighted to be part of it. Well, I'm delighted to have you. And, you know, this podcast, Stories of the Second World War, is about just that. And today we're talking about the story of your father, his war experience, that is, of course, Major Leslie Young. And he really had an exceptional experience during World War II. I know your book titled Escaping with His Life from Dunkirk to D-Day and Beyond covers so many different themes and so many different theaters in World War II. So I'm just so excited to get into that with you today. Now, for those listeners who perhaps aren't yet familiar with the story of Major Young, your father, um, could you sort of give us a, a brief introduction to how he, like so many other young men, got the notion to enlist in the army and um, really join this war and sort of where his, his first war experience began? Yeah, his, his first war experience was at, at school. In England, where he joined the um, you know the volunteer force in the school itself, and enjoyed doing some very basic army training at school. He then signed up to the territorial army immediately. He left school, uh, so that would have been in the 1930s. And then, you know, as soon as war was declared, he uh, signed up and uh, was sent straight out with the British Expeditionary Force to France. And then in terms of the evacuation of Dunkirk, I mean, in, in recent years, I think due in large part to the, um, you know, the, the 
very popular movie. That has become in and of itself such a colossal event during World War II, which I know your father had a part to play in. Could you tell us about his experience, his quite exceptional experience with the evacuation of Dunkirk? Yes, well, of course, you know, Dunkirk, or the, the retreat towards Dunkirk and the eventual evacuation, I think came as an enormous shock and surprise to the soldiers who'd been stationed in northern France and Belgium during that period of the phony war that ran from the start of uh, uh, from 1939 through until uh, about six months later, eight months later. Uh, one moment, they, there they were, dug in in northern France, uh, basically along the Maginot Line. And then all of a sudden, they were in headlong retreat as the Germans advanced. And so there was an extraordinary period, I think, of great disillusion and dismay that we seemed to be retreating so quickly before real battle had been engaged. Uh, Dad was uh, in in northern France. He'd, he'd been on various training courses. He'd been taking playing his part in the strengthening of the defences. Uh, indeed, he lost some very close friends during one of these training courses, uh, an incident that I recount in the book when a, an instructor was demonstrating a landmine and jumped on it to show that it was safe once disarmed and the thing blew up and killed a dozen or more men uh, as they stood watching him. So that was a pretty ghastly introduction to the horrors of war. Then came the retreat, and my father found himself on the perimeter line defending uh, the beaches from the German advance, an advance that, as as you will know very well, Noah, was stalled uh, for reasons in some ways still somewhat unclear. but anyway, it gave the uh, retreating troops on the beaches a chance to um, get off. My father held the perimeter line for a couple of days and then fell back to the beaches. And um, by the time he arrived at the beaches, the evacuation was getting towards being completed. Uh, the chaos of the very early days on the beaches was over. Discipline had been restored by the officers and, and partly by the Navy. Um, who had taken a strong hand in trying to prevent soldiers rushing every single boat that appeared on the beaches uh, and trying to in- install some some discipline. And uh, my father, having uh, arrived at the beaches, uh, realised that his best hope of getting off lay not there, but on the uh, further west, on the East Mole in Dunkirk, and that was where he headed to with his... his uh, members of his company, and was eventually taken off on one of the last boats to get away, um, uh, you know, right at the end of the period of the evacuation. I, um, I found writing about Dunkirk one of the most difficult things to do, because, yes, we've all seen the films and we've all read lots of accounts, but when you really knit all of that together and then you put your father in your imagination in the middle of it. It's really extraordinary to me that those men came back without suffering nightmares for the rest of their lives, because it was a an horrendous experience on those beaches. There was nowhere to hide. They were being constantly strafed and bombed. There was no certainty that they were going to get off. There was a terrific rush to get on every boat, little boat that came in. It must have been an absolute nightmare. And um, 
I don't know how any of them got through mentally, let alone physically. Without question, I mean, it, it is truly a, a remarkable, a remarkable concept to think that the people like that were able to go back to their, their everyday lives after the war and continue to raise families and, and be such successful human beings. Well, now I understand that following the retreat of Dunkirk, your father volunteered for the newly formed commandos and then took part in their, their first operation. How did he become acquainted with this this new unit, and what were some of those first combat experiences like? Well, I think this points up what we've just been saying. You know, he he came back from Dunkirk, and within uh, a few days, he had decided that he he wanted to see further action. Uh, he came to the conclusion that if he stayed with his regiment, you know, it would be some time before they reembarked onto the continent of Europe, and it so happened that. Around that time, Churchill had prompted the establishment of a commando force whose role was going to be um, partly to um, be ready to attack German forces should there be an invasion of Britain, which was, of course, anticipated and which Hitler indeed was preparing for. Um, But also, uh, he, he set up the commandos to mount kind of hit and run raids on the coast of Europe really to show our European brothers and sisters that Britain was still in the war and still wanting to take the fight to the Germans, and I think partly to encourage and promote morale, good, better morale at home. You know, Dunkirk was a terrible defeat, and um, Churchill wanted to be able to show that we were still fighting. And so Dad decided that he wanted to join the commandos. He had a long period of training in what sounds like quite a balmy summer down at Weymouth on the um, southwest coast of Britain. It's a lovely sort of seaside resort where they uh, did lots of swimming and bicycle riding and uh, training in commando techniques um, and uh, mainly geared towards uh, landings by sea um, on the coast of Europe. And he then uh, went up with number four commando, which he was with, up to um, northwest Scotland where he was taught how to kill people, basically, how to kill people silently and quickly, and how to be ready to, ev- en- to be ready for any eventuality when they eventually uh, were called upon to land in Europe, which they did in uh, January 1941 uh, in the first commando raid of the war on some islands just off the northern coast of Norway in the Arctic Circle, the Lofoten Islands. Uh, Now, the Lofoten Islands are famous for fish, Noah, you may or may not know. And the fish was important to the Germans because of the oil that could be produced from it. They were using the oil both to make their bombs and to lubricate their um, machinery and guns. And um, Churchill was determined to try and destroy the fish oil factories and storage tanks on the Lofoten Islands. So they set off across the North Sea in freezing January weather. Uh, They landed by a little rubber craft in various ports, uh, small, tiny fishing villages, really, around the um, coast of the Lofoten Islands. And um, it was an extremely successful raid. They met with relatively little resistance from the Germans. Um, They very quickly captured or killed those who appeared. 
um, they were able to destroy a large number of fish oil factories and um, storage tanks. They liberated quite a significant number, 300 odd uh, Norwegians who wanted to volunteer for the war effort. They sank quite a few German boats. And, and this is really interesting, they brought back one of the first Enigma um, machines to be found during the war. And that Enigma machine and its ciphers enabled the um, the the, the uh, military to uh, get a very clear understanding very early on of what German troop movements there were and what their uh, naval forces were doing in and around the North Sea. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, we're not even finished with our conversation, and what you've just described is is a remarkable war experience, to say the least. Now, following his his activity and the raid at the Lofoten Islands, he was captured in Tunisia. Now, that in and of itself is is such a great story. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about what happened to Major Young in Tunisia? Sure. Uh, Tunisia, as as your listeners will know, came right at the end of the long-running North Africa campaign when it was a bit like a tennis match, you know, that uh, Monty was fighting Rommel up and down the North African coast for some time, but eventually uh, managed to corral him um, into the into the country of Tunisia. And the idea was to push Rommel back uh, towards the Mediterranean coast and into the sea. And with a in a pincer movement, the 8th Army coming from the eastern North Africa and the 1st Army coming from um, western North Africa, that was Operation, the landings of Operation Torch, they squeezed Rommel into Tunisia. And, you know, as we have, as we found throughout the Second World War, the Germans were able to mount a very, very stout defence, which they did over some months, again, in atrocious uh, winter conditions, pouring rain, heavy mud. Um, the fighting went on for some weeks, and uh, my father's company uh, fought their way through towards the uh, eastern coast of Tunisia, where Rommel was gradually uh, being forced, forced back. Um, the fighting, as I say, was intense. They were under constant bombardment. His um, battalion commander, uh, Johnny Johnson, was killed, possibly by friendly fire. And then um, the second in command, Whitaker, took over and was ordered by Battalion HQ to take four hills uh, immediately ahead of them. All of these hills occupied and heavily fortified by the Germans. Uh, he felt that this was a pretty tall order on his first day in command and suggested a two-stage process, but he was told in no uncertain terms by Battalion HQ that he had to go ahead, even though he had had no opportunity to recce the ground ahead. So my father was tasked with his company of attacking, capturing, and defending one of these hills, Hill 583. Uh, which he did um, in the evening of um, a day in March, April time, 1943. Um, his company suffered losses, but they did capture the hill and they held it all night. But early in the morning, the next day, the Germans um, counterattacked. And um, 
uh, a very heavy counterattack on three sides of the hill. Uh, my father tragically lost a number of men. Uh, others of his force wanted to surrender, but he forced them back into their trenches at gunpoint, and they carried on fighting. But at the end of the day, they were overwhelmed. The radios weren't working, so they couldn't summon up um, uh, air support. Uh, they hadn't. Uh, there hadn't been enough grenades for them to take with them up the hill, so they were shorter, and they ran very quickly short of ammunition. And of course, the Germans eventually overran them, and my father was forced to surrender his trench and um, went into captivity. Before we continue our conversation with Nick Young about the incredible story of his father, I'd just like to share with you a brief message from our friends at Legacy Collectibles. On this podcast, we talk about the great figures and defining moments that shaped the greatest conflict in human history. If you're someone like me who is deeply passionate about the Second World War, Legacy Collectibles provides so many opportunities for you to own a piece of the war for yourself. Do be sure to check out their easily accessible website, legacy-collectibles.com, after you finish listening to this episode. Well, then your father, he went on the run before his, his POW camp was taken over by the Nazis um, after the September 1943 Italian armistice. So can you tell us about that story? How did he sort of, um, I mean, really get out of the camp and then, and then spend six months on the run in the mountains? Okay, so pretty much everybody who was captured in northern Africa was uh, taken across the Mediterranean for imprisonment in Italy. And uh, my father was very irritated by this. He'd been captured by the Germans. He really didn't want to be handed over to the Italians, whose fighting qualities he didn't rate very highly. Um, but nevertheless, that's what happened. And he was put in a camp at uh, Capua, just um, near Rome, and then eventually taken to an officer's camp at Fontanellato near Parma in northern Italy. Uh, he spent um, oh, about six months as a prisoner there. It was actually quite a pleasant camp. The weather was good. Um, it was quite a, a reasonable regime in that camp. They got lots of Red Cross food parcels coming through regularly. Um, the commandant was a pretty nice guy who treated the prisoners fairly leniently. There were various escape attempts and tunnels dug um, uh, in which my father played a part. Uh, but then eventually in September 1943, as you know, Noah, the Italians laid down their arms and um, the question came, well, what happens to the guys in the prison camps? There are about 80-odd prison camps all around Italy, um, uh, about 80,000 men uh, held in those camps. And uh, many of them wanted to take their chance at that point, the Italians laying down their arms, and escape. But the order came through from London that they were to stay put. Monty and his men were invading Italy from the south, and the idea was that the Allied forces would very quickly overrun Italy before the Germans could um, establish their defences and occupy the country. And that, you know, Monty didn't want the men from the prison camp sloshing around, getting into difficulties, causing damage that Monty didn't want to happen to bridges and things. They were just generally getting in the way of the invasion forces. Well, in a number of camps, including the one that my father was in, Fontenelato, the senior British officer came to the conclusion that this was a pretty damn silly order. 
he thought that the german they thought that the germans would come and occupy italy very quickly indeed that the camps would all be overrun and the chaps in them the 80,000 men in the camps very quickly be taken back to germany which is indeed what happened but before that could take place um uh, the men in my father's camp made a break for it they got out through the wire thanks to the great help and support of the italian commandant they hid out in the countryside around the camp for a couple of days. The camp was immediately occupied by the Germans, so they were very lucky to get out in time. And then over the next two or three days, in small groups, the men headed off. Uh, some of them went north to go across, try and get across the Alps. Some of them went west or east to try and capture a boat and somehow get away by sea. But the majority of them headed south, which meant trekking through the Apennine Mountains. Italy, Italy's spine is a, is a long chain of mountains called the Apennines. They're pretty big, some of them. And, um, you know, these men, they all looked like Brits and Americans and New Zealanders. They None of them really looked like Italians. They very few of them spoke Italian. They None of them had maps. So it was quite a, quite a tall order, but they set off. And what they found, and I, for me, this is one of the most extraordinary stories of the war, what they found in the mountains time and time and time again was extremely poor Italian farming families prepared to take these guys in, feed them, hide them for a day or two, and then send them on their way, risking their lives in the process. There was a price on these men's heads. The Germans shot whole villages for helping escapers. So there was a real risk involved in this. But um, something like well, 30-odd thousand men of the 80,000 who were in prison managed to get away, and um, 11,000 of them actually managed to get back home, thanks to the extraordinary generosity of these Italians. And my father, whose little wartime diary I found in his bedside cabinet, virtually the day after he died, um, you know, that told very briefly in sort of little pencil, scribbled pencil entries, a couple of lines a day, no names, no places, nothing that could identify the people who had helped him. But, you know, painted an extraordinary story of life on the run, hiding out in these little villages, never quite knowing whether you were going to be betrayed or not, or fat stumbled upon by a German patrol, and then setting off again the next day through towards the end of the uh, towards the end of that year 1943 seven or eight feet of snow in those mountains so it was pretty tough going they were walking long distances you know boots gave out some people had no um equipment at all some were uh, disguised as italians some were still in their army great coats i mean it was an extraordinary cavalcade really and slowly slowly they they got down south then the, uh, my father got snowed in. Uh, he developed pneumonia. He was nursed back to life by an incredibly wonderful Italian family who I'm in touch with to this day, who who hid him away in a shepherd's hut in the mountains. And then eventually he, he met up with two very young Jewish partisans, a brother and a sister called Eugenio and Silvia. She was 19. The brother was 23. And these two, who knew the mountains very well, and who knew the area just south of Rome, which is where he'd got to at this point, they offered to guide him through the last few miles to Anzio, 
which is where the Allied troops, the Americans and the British and others, had just landed. This is now January, February 1944. And um, they threaded their way through the mountains. They were sleeping out in feet of snow, freezing cold, tiptoeing, tiptoeing through the mountains. Of course, at this time, you know, the Germans had rushed to shut off the beaches at Anzio, desperate to keep the Allies from establishing any kind of foothold. And um, the, the, two, the two guides with, with the girl's boyfriend, Carlo, um, found a way through. Uh, they arrived at the German lines. They crawled through the German minefields, uh, holding on to each other's ankles as they went, dead of night. And as they came through the German minefields and into what you might call no man's land, they were spotted by a German patrol and the Germans opened fire and um, the young boy Eugenio was shot and killed. Carlo was very badly wounded, likely to die. So the two men, uh, my father and a New Zealander he was traveling with, and the girl was distraught, desperate to stay with her uh, her boyfriend who was so badly injured and to try and help her brother. But my father and the New Zealander said, look, uh, Sylvia, you can't stay here. We're gonna, the Germans are going to come back and attack us. There was still firing going on. We've got to try and get to the American line. So eventually they persuaded her to go with them. Uh, they got through no man's land. And as they were approaching the American lines at dawn, an American patrol spotted these shadowy figures, uh, you know, in no man's land. And of course, and understandably, uh, decided to shoot first and ask questions later. And uh, the New Zealander was shot in the arm and collapsed into a ditch. My father jumped into another ditch, uh, dragging the girl with him. But as he did so, she was hit in the throat. Uh, eventually, shouting and screaming, he managed to get the American patrol to stop firing, uh, and they were taken into the Allied lines at Anzio. Sylvia was taken straight to the um, the hospital on, on the beach at Anzio, the field hospital, and uh, tragically she died the next morning. And I mean, my father's first job in freedom, back, back in freedom and with, with, with troops, was to arrange her funeral. Well, I know your your um, father's war story doesn't doesn't end there, but I, I have to ask, you know, the story of of Italy and the story of those Jewish partisans that helped him is is truly remarkable. When you set out to write this book, how did you discover all of the details of that story? Because I mean, you you give a very detailed and in depth account of that. Did your father keep very detailed writings of his time in Italy, or is this something that through research? You had to build upon what he had left you behind with. You know, I mean, his diary was sketchy, to say the least. And Noah, it was, you know, a couple of lines per day. And as I say, with no names and no place names. So I, I really was starting from a pretty low, low base. So I've had to research it. And, um, you, you know, I, 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 through talking to people and doing more research and talking to this wonderful Italian family, um, and talking to the New Zealanders, the New Zealander who was with him and his family, he too had left some accounts behind. I started to uncover the story of Eugenio and Sylvia. 
And, um, you know, I was, well, shocked and horrified and intrigued about them. And the only two little clues my father had left behind was a telegram uh, uh, that he received from the girl's mother uh, immediately after the war, thanking my father for some information that he had provided. and. Um, a little newspaper cutting which referred to the burial of Sylvia Elfer, that's the name of the girl, in the Jewish War Cemetery in Rome. And um, one day I googled the name Sylvia Elfer, just I was idly, you know, mulling over the story one day, and I googled her name, and up came a letter from an American guy called Don Lee. Um, who works for one of the American news um, broadcasting agencies. And he talked in this letter, which he had written to an Italian newspaper, about two family members called Eugenio and Silvia, who he, he thought had died helping Allied soldiers escape, but he knew no details and he wanted more information. So, of course, I responded to this letter, which was 10 years old by this point, and he'd moved house and he'd changed his email address and goodness knows what. But eventually we got into contact. And so suddenly I could put a, a face to these two names. He sent me photographs, the whole family history, you know, the, the, um, their family, their, their parents had been um, living in Austria when war broke out. And of course, they very quickly experienced the terrible cruelty of the Nazis towards Jewish people in Germany and Austria. So they decided to head for Italy, where, you know, in fact, uh, they were pretty well treated. But as soon as the Germans invaded Italy, they realized they had to go into hiding and that they went into hiding in this village where my father was uh, also hiding out. And that's how he came to meet these two young Jewish people. And it's been a huge thrill for me to be able to meet family members, which I've now done on both sides of the Atlantics, and express to them my extraordinary and eternal gratitude, because there's no doubt whatsoever in my mind that if it hadn't been for those two, my father and the New Zealander would have been killed, and I wouldn't have existed. And, um, you know, the story, I, I could go on about this for a long time, because these two, their mother, their father, their father died almost immediately after hearing that his two children were dead. The mother uh, carried on. She recovered her daughter's body from the American War Cemetery at Anzio and brought her body back to be buried in the Jewish cemetery in Rome. And then, through a series of coincidences, she was able to discover that her son's body had been effectively kind of buried in a ditch where he fell. And uh, she did some search thanks to the um, uh, remaining Allied forces. This is 1946-47. She was able to find his body, exhume it. She wrote to my father wanting information about what, body, what the boy was wearing when he died. That's what the telegram was all about. Uh, thanking him for that information. And she was able to bring her son's body back to Rome to bury it with uh, his father and his sister. And my wife and I have spent uh, two or three days now uh, over various times sitting by the grave of those brave young Italians, young Jewish Italians who helped 
my father. And, uh, you know, we're just so grateful to them. Certainly. Well, that, that is, is truly remarkable. Um, following his, his, um, well, I, I shouldn't say safe arrival, but following his successful arrival to Anzio Beach, what happened next for Major Young? Sort of, um, rounding off his, his experience during World War II, what, what events came next? Well, he, he was put on a boat from Naples back to the UK and immediately said, right, I want to, I want to fight. I want to fight. And uh, this was just before the uh, D-Day landings in June 1944. Um, he was given a period of a couple of weeks of intensive training as to what to expect on the other side of the English Channel. And then on D-Day plus 20, he um, landed in France on the um, Mulberry Harbour at Aramanche and um, fought the Germans through Normandy. Um, you know, the, the bitter, bitter fighting that took place in Normandy. We, we, we sometimes don't, we know, uh, have this idea that, you know, the landings in, in, in France and, and the D-Day and all that was all kind of fought on the beaches. But of course, that was just the start of a long and bitter campaign, which resulted in, you know, half of Normandy being virtually flattened in the fierce fighting. Of course, many French civilians lost their lives as well as the, thousands of allied forces and indeed German soldiers. But eventually the Germans were forced back out of France, back towards, uh, through Belgium and Holland. My father was fighting literally all the way. I mean, every day um, there was fighting going on, as I've discovered from his um, company's war diary, which is safely stored in the National Archive here at Kew in London. And, you know, there was fighting every day, uh, defensive skirmishes, attacking skirmishes going on, lots of rivers to cross, bridges blown up. You know, you know, you can imagine what all that was like. And eventually the Germans were forced back to the German border. There'd been the, the, the catastrophe of Arnhem. My father took part in rescuing the, uh, some of the Allied troops uh, who were caught up in the fighting around uh, the bridges, uh, Arnhem and Nijmegen and so on. And then, um, Eventually, they fought their way through to the German border. This is now December 1944. My father's battalion had been pretty much wiped out. Uh, you know, in in those months of fighting, men were killed, wounded, um, and it was decided to amalgamate the companies in the battalion. And they said to my father, "Look, young, you've had a pretty busy war. Um, I think it's about time you went home." And so that's what happened. He um, said goodbye to his men. A lot of them went with him, of course. Uh, there's a very moving scene described in one account I found where all those who were going home, they were the kind of veterans. They'd done their bit um, as they marched out of the camp on their way to get a boat back to the UK. Those who were remaining formed up uh, a sort of triumphal arch and cheered them as they as they marched out. And uh, yeah, he ended up safely back in in Britain. He did some. He was training for a while, doing some training for a while as an instructor, and then eventually demobbed. So yeah, pretty full war. He saw pretty much from the beginning right through till the end. I often wonder if he wouldn't have liked to have carried on and fought his way to Berlin. But there you go. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, 
and it is indeed men like your your father Nick that um deserve our utmost respect. I I can't imagine bearing the sacrifices that he had to go through. It is truly a remarkable story and um you've done us all a great service by by writing this book and I know I've enjoyed reading it and I encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy if they can of your book it's called Escaping with His Life from Dunkirk to D-Day and Beyond. Well, Nick Young, thank you so much again for joining me today. Uh, I'm very grateful to you, Noah. I mean, you know, I wrote the book for my own um, interest and for my children. I just wanted to tell them, I wanted to discover what the story was and then tell them. Uh, my father was a very modest man. He, he, he had a, a quiet life after the war. And I was literally absolutely astonished when I discovered from uh, doing the research and talking to people who fought with him. I mean, he was known as the mad major in the commando. Oh, your old dad, your old Eddie, never have, never have led his men across a bridge if he could possibly make them swim the river. You know, he was um, you know, a really inspirational leader of men. And yet the man I knew was quiet, withdrawn, quite reserved, certainly very modest. And uh, it was an eye-opener to me telling the story and just a huge thrill and a pleasure when Pen and Sword said they'd like to publish it because I felt then I was really doing him true honor and justice. Certainly. Well, Nick, I think you've done just that in writing your new book, Escaping with His Life from Dunkirk to D-Day and Beyond. And for everyone listening, I'll include a link to the book in the description of this episode. Thank you all so much for listening today to Stories of the Second World War. It's been such a pleasure having you with us. Before you go, though, I would just like to encourage everyone to go to your favorite podcasting platform, wherever you're listening to the show right now, and consider leaving us a positive rating and review if you've enjoyed today's episode. Additionally, I'd just like to encourage everyone to consider supporting the podcast by visiting our friends at Legacy Collectibles. Legacy Collectibles is an antique World War II firearms dealer that I trust and is a must-check-out for anyone who listens to the podcast and wants to own a piece of World War II for themselves. While they specialize in World War II German pistols, Legacy Collectibles prides themselves in having a user-friendly website where you can browse a vast array of authentic and original military firearms. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to the Legacy Collectibles website at legacy-collectibles.com or simply follow the link in the description of today's episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Do be sure to join us right here again next week on Stories of the Second World War. Thank you.